My name is Randy. I'm delighted to be a part of your fellowship and to be singing, praising God, and uh, learning together from the Gospel of John. On January 6th, 2021, 2021, I was enjoying my lunch, watching the news. I knew it was a special day. Uh, Congress was supposed to approve of the election results and appoint President uh, Biden as the new president. As I was eating my lunch, I was watching a little bit of the rally that was on Capitol Hill, and then the crowd going to the Capitol, and uh, Suddenly, I thought, what in the world's going on? And I could even sense in the facial expression and the voice of the uh, newscaster that they were very fearful. And uh, as things developed, I became very nervous myself. And uh, I remember pulling up WhatsApp on my phone and texting my friend in Germany. I know he's a prayer warrior. And I said, pray for our country. I'm not sure what's going to happen here. And we've been talking about January 6th ever since in this country. Now, some of you are wondering, where is he, where is he going with us? I am not going to make a political statement. I'm just going to say this was a very public event that everyone knew about and was disrupted by. That is the level of what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus walked into that temple. He's always surprising us. Last week, it was just a, a wedding party. It was small and private and family-oriented. And he turned those six-stone water jar holding the water into wine, bringing his new wine joy. And I appreciated Glenn's message there, talking about how it points to the ultimate messianic banquet where we'll enjoy in heaven with Jesus. But this is more public, isn't it? And it raises all kinds of questions in our minds. For one thing, as you read it, you think, now wait a minute. I just read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all had this happening at the end of Jesus' ministry, right before his crucifixion. It became the basis of their accusations, the religious leaders, saying that Jesus was blaspheming. But here's John right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So there's been a lot of debates, and some scholars will say, well, there's differences here. Maybe there were two temple cleansings. Others say, yeah, but the similarities are so great. Uh, maybe John, to fulfill his theological purposes, just put it early in Jesus' ministry. We're not sure. It surely makes sense that John put it here because he's all about Jesus infusing all of the institutions of Judaism with a new meaning. The power of his coming as the Son of God. Other questions are raised, like, why is Jesus so angry? What is it about this that happens in the temple that infuriates him? And then we, we hear the crowd asking the question, who do you think you are? 
What authority do you have? What's the sign that you have any authority to do this? And then we get to the end of the passage, and we see that people believe in Jesus, but Jesus doesn't believe in them. He won't entrust himself to them because he knows what's in them. So many questions. Here's what I think John is trying to say. His main idea is that Jesus will do whatever it takes to exalt God his Father and to make a way for us to know him. Jesus will do whatever it takes to glorify his Father, protecting his holiness, and to bring us into the access of knowing God. So let's look at it, shall we? Father, I just pray that as we study this word, that you might help us understand your truth, experience it with deep conviction, and then to obey you and to believe you and to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, what makes Jesus so angry? In chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, we see this chaos coming. In verse 12, he goes with his family and his disciples to visit his home area in Capernaum, and they enjoy a time together, evidently, although it's the last time we read of Jesus hanging out with his family in the Gospels. And then he fulfills the law by going to Jerusalem to attend the Passover. If you study your Bible, you know that the Old Testament required Jewish men, usually they took their families, to attend three feasts or festivals in Jerusalem per year. And one was the feast of the Passover. This was to commemorate God's grace in delivering them from Egypt from bondage. And so Jesus, as a good Jewish man, traveled with his disciples to Jerusalem to fulfill the law. And what does he find when he gets to Jerusalem? Verse 14 tells us he sees people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, money changers sitting there. Now, you can look for pictures of the temple and you see the temple complex itself, and then there's the court for women, and then there's the court of the Gentiles, which is a large area around the temple. And it's a place for Gentile people to come, God-fearers who want to come and worship God. But they were required to bring a sacrifice. And many people traveled long distances during the Passover to come to Jerusalem, and it was a hassle to bring animals with them to sacrifice. And so as a convenience, the temple leaders would provide animals and an exchange of coinage so that they could fulfill the law. That's what was going on in the temple. But Jesus saw this, and it bothered him. He saw that animals and things were happening there, but why? Why was it disrupting what God intended for the temple? 
Remember? Jesus will do whatever it takes to exalt his Father. The temple was the place where people would exalt God. It was the place where you'd go to meet with God. It was the heart of Israel's worship. And here was a place that had been distracted by making money and selling the animals. And this infuriated Jesus. Here were people coming to pray to the Father, and their prayer time was disrupted by the selling of animals and the change of coins. I remember uh, being in Thailand, and on a couple of occasions I visited a Buddhist temple. Buddhism is big in Thailand. And I remember walking through that temple complex, seeing the great statues of Buddha, all the trinkets, and that place is a marketplace. They're selling all kinds of trinkets, and Buddhism is a wealthy, money-making procedure in that country. And I know how I felt walking through that. I can't imagine how Jesus felt walking through the temple and seeing this. What did he do about it? Verse 15 tells us. He made a cord whip. Now this isn't a leather whip because if he'd made a leather whip and started whipping people and animals with that, he would have been arrested. Uh, it could have been a straw whip, we're not sure, but he made some kind of a whip and he drove animals and the merchants out, poured out their coins, and turned over their tables. Can you imagine the chaos? Can you imagine? People standing back, stunned, as he's walking around, whipping people, and, and turning over tables, and you can hear the coins falling on the ground, and the animals are lowing. He opens the gate, and here goes all the pigeons. They're flying all over the place. It's chaos. Now, I want to point out here, because they always do this on television shows too, no one was hurt. No animals were abused. And Jesus did not sin. You know that verse from Ephesians 4, 28? In your anger, do not sin. Jesus was the only one who could obey that command. He did not sin in his anger. He took action. And then he said this in verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The merchants had transformed this place, a worshipful prayer center, into a noisy market. Business became more important than ministry. A place for Gentiles to come and pray to God in another gospel, it says, this is to be a place of prayer for the nations. What are you doing? This upset Jesus. And it displays the spiritual condition of Israel at the time. No wine. An empty religious 
experience. A temple filled with merchants, a distracted worship. And Jesus gets angry. What did his disciples do? Well, it says in verse 16 that many years later, or I should say verse 17, the disciples remembered a verse from Psalm 69, verse 9. This is what Psalm 69, verse 9 says. And it's King David who's writing this, and he's feeling the oppression of the enemy, and as a faithful Righteous Jewish man, he's pleading with God because due to his commitment to God, he's going to suffer. And this is what it said, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Just as David was enduring opposition because of his faithful commitment to temple worship, Jesus, in his zeal, will suffer and die because of it. It's an amazing thing to see that Jesus, who is David's greater son, cleanses the temple because he's rightly concerned about worshiping God and will do whatever it takes to exalt God and to make a way for us to know him. I want to point out a couple things here. Do you see the courage of Jesus Christ? He was the only one willing to do what the right thing to do would be. The only one. Everybody else seems to just kind of, well, let's not make waves. And Jesus saw it and in courage confronted it. Don't you love that about Jesus? Sometimes we get the wrong idea about Jesus, meek and mild, you know, and we see these pictures of him that don't portray the accurate reality. Jesus was a courageous human being, the God-man. He alone would stand up when no one else would. And secondly, do you see his priorities? That he demanded that God's house be returned to its intended use. Jesus will do whatever it takes to exalt God and to make a way for us to know him. I think there's a couple of implications for us here. One is uh, public courage. If we're followers of Jesus, the things that matter to Jesus should matter to us. Let me give you an example. I was angry when I heard a senator from the East say that pro-life pregnancy centers are places that deceive women. They go there and then they take advantage of them and try to talk them out of having an abortion. I was upset about that. I was upset because I thought either this senator is deliberately lying or she is just ignorant because for 30 years I've been a part of Bridgehaven, which was, used to be aid to women. And I have personally seen women and children who have been ministered to and loved. I've seen them give financial and emotional and, and spiritual help to women and men and encourage people. 
through the hardest point in their times of life. I've seen children adopted and welcomed into families. And I think, how many pastors would be willing to stand up and say, that's just wrong. That senator made a public statement, but it's, it's wrong and we need to stand and talk about what, what matters to God should matter to us. David said in Psalm 139, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit me together in my mother's womb. I, I know we need to be concerned about the needs of women. Amen. But what about the needs of the most vulnerable human beings on planet Earth? Children in the womb. Well, if you're upset with me for making that political statement, I'd be happy to hear your, your opinion afterwards. I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm trying to say that the things that matter to God should matter to us. And like Jesus, we should have the courage to speak up kindly, but firmly. But let me get a little closer to home. What about our priorities in worship? We talk about prosperity gospel, and a lot of so-called Christians get really rich on naive people through prosperity gospel, preaching and teaching. But how do we commercialize worship? How do we get distracted by the things that are not the priorities of Jesus? For instance, I've been around evangelical churches for my whole life, and I've seen that often we elevate a personal preference above the core theological truths. We put personal preferences even above Jesus sometimes. That's what we do. And so it, we, it, whether it's how you should dress in church on a Sunday or the style of music or how loud the music is or how soft the music is, we have these personal, I mean, I've seen people bitterly divided over how we educate our children and make that an issue of highest priority in the church. I used to tell our new member classes, you know, we sent our children to a Christian school and I saw a lot of sin in the Christian school. And then we sent them to a public school. Oh, I saw a lot of sin in the public school. And then we homeschooled. And I saw a lot of sin in the homeschool, mainly by the gym teacher. Every parent needs to prayerfully consider what's best for their kids. Amen. But do we bring anything in the way of Jesus? I've had people sit in a small group and say, well, I don't think I'm welcome here. I'm not a part of the right political party. And I think, what if somebody comes into the church and they're of a, a different belief, but we put some obstacle in the way for them to know Jesus. Jesus would do whatever it took to exalt God and to make a way for people to know him. We need to think carefully about that in the evangelicalism. I speak to myself here. Jesus will do whatever it takes 
and the things that matter to God should matter to us. Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on, shall we? <laughs> Secondly, who does Jesus think he is? Verses 18 to 22. Now, wait a minute now. What sign do you show us for doing these things? It's basically saying, what is the sign that you have authority? Now, they should have known if they'd read their Bibles, Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. You might want to look there. Here's what it says, predicting the coming of the messenger. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in the righteousness to the Lord. They should have known their Bibles. Jesus was fulfilling Malachi 3. But Jesus offers them a sign in verses 19 to 21. He answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews go, what? <laughs> Say that again? You'll do what? Yeah. What, what, don't you know that Herod has taken 46 years to rebuild this place? Now, if you know your history, you know that there was the Temple of Solomon, which was destroyed in about 586 B.C. Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra came back. They rebuilt the temple, but it was under need of repair. And so King Herod, to make a name for himself, started in 20 B.C. and was evidently working up to that present day, trying to refurbish it and remodel it. 46 years, he says, it took to rebuild it. And you're going to raise it up in three days? And he said, well, I'm speaking about the temple of my body. Here's an amazing statement. That Jesus walked into the temple and basically said, this place is going down and I'm the new temple. I'm the new temple. This institution is going to be infused with a greater reality. The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. The tabernacle, the temple, center of Israel's worship was now located in a human being, Jesus Himself. He is the new temple. The old would be obsolete. And since he uniquely manifested the Father, they would destroy him, crucify him on a cross. But according to Acts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in the resurrection from the dead. Jesus locates the temple in his presence. And his authority comes from his death and resurrection. Raised in corruption 
It says in 1 Corinthians 15 about us, following in Jesus' train, Jesus was incorruptible, but he was raised indestructible. And based upon that indestructible life, he has all authority. Glenn just read it in Colossians chapter 1. He is over all things. I love it how it says in verse 22 that the disciples, this is the second time in the passage it repeats this, they remembered something. And it says that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the word Jesus spoken had spoken. They didn't understand at the time, but after his resurrection, they're going, oh, okay, now Isaiah 53 makes sense. So let me ask you a question here. There's also an implication for us. On what do you depend to gain access with God? A lot of times people come to church as a way of trying to make God happy with themselves. They depend on their own performance. But what Jesus is telling us is that worship is not a place. It's a person. You know, this is the genius of Christianity, by the way, that we're, our worship centers around a person. And then when people gather who love this person, it becomes his temple. First Corinthians chapter 3 says, you are God's temple. This is why, by the way, that Redeemer can meet in a mall. We don't need some cathedral. We can meet at a mall. I was teaching in an Asian country that I can't mention right now, group of pastors. And uh, at the end of our workshop, I said to these pastors, how can I pray for you men? And I had a translator there. Some, several of them could speak very good English. And they shared prayer requests, and we prayed together. But afterwards, one of the pastors came up to me and he said, would you pray for me? Now, here was a man who was very articulate, knew his own language, Asian language, and he knew English, and he had been one of the best uh, students of the Bible in my group. But he said, would you pray? And I said, okay, what can I pray? And he looked me in the eye and he said, my church meets in a cave. I thought my hearing aids had gone out. I say, could you say that again? My church meets in a cave. I said, okay. Um, I thought he wanted me to pray for his church meeting in a cave. And, and I asked him, well, why do you meet in a cave? I don't know how many Americans would go to worship in a cave. Do you? He said, Oh, the authorities clamped down on us, so we had to leave our church building, and we had to go worship in a cave. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'll pray for you. He said, no, no, no. So I need you to pray because the authorities called me in again and questioned me right before this workshop, and I'm afraid they're going to close us down again. Now, you have to understand, in this country, when they gather and worship, they can't crank up the sound and sing at the top of their lungs praises to Jesus, they have to whisper in fear of someone hearing them and arresting them. So I said, wow, the authorities could shut you down, persecute you. I said, so what are you, so you going to do if they shut you down? And his face literally beamed and he said, oh, we have, we have plan B. We have another place where we'll go. 
All of that to say because Jesus is the locus of worship. We can worship anywhere, no matter what oppressive government clamps down on us. All because Jesus said, the temple is my body. Don't you love it? Don't you love this Lord Jesus Christ that we worship and the genius of his plan? Third, why doesn't Jesus trust people? We find him getting angry. He says, I have the authority. Through my death and resurrection, I will make a way to God. I will do whatever it takes to exalt the Father and bring people into relationship with him. But I don't trust anybody. They're like, no, what's going on here? Verses 23 and 25. Some believe in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. Well, that seems like a good idea, doesn't it? They see him heal someone. Maybe they saw him change water into wine, and they believe in him. Isn't that a good thing? Witnessing a miracle, signs and wonders, can inspire belief, but it may not be saving faith. It could be faith in a miracle worker. But Jesus did not entrust himself. And by the way, it's the same Greek word. Some believed in him. And then the word entrust is Jesus believing or entrusting himself. Same word. Because he knew what was in their hearts. He looks at Nicodemus that we'll look at next week. And he sees a religious leader who has no clue what it means to be a follower of God. He looks at Nathaniel and he says, I saw you under the fig tree. He looks at Peter and he says, I see not Simon, I see a rock. What does he see when he looks at you? and delights in you and sees your future. But on the other hand, he sees the sin. I've had people say to me, well, you didn't just trust yourself. Do you realize that Jesus fed 5,000 people and they had 12 baskets left over and everybody goes, wow, what a miracle. And they wanted to make him king. And then he started talking about the significance of the miracle. By the way, this is bread. And you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And it said most of the disciples left. Because they believed in the sign, but they didn't want to take to heart what he was saying. And that's the way it is with us, that Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? There's no room for spiritual pride in us. Which leads us to two conclusions as we come to the end of this passage. One is that when Jesus looks at us, what does he see? He sees that we are more sinful than we could have known. Sometimes we get upset when people speak poorly of us because we see ourselves in the best light. They see us in the worst light. Jesus sees us in the right light. 
and we're more sinful than we could ever imagine. All I need to ask is what distracts you from worshiping Jesus every day? Pornography, television, opinion of friends. And how does it make you feel to know that when Jesus looks at you, he sees you for who you are? Now that's the bad news. The good news is we are more loved than we could ever imagine. We are more loved. Because as you come to the end of this, you realize Jesus is the only one who's the faithful one of Psalm 69. He's the only one left when everybody abandons him. He's the only one hanging on that cross for the sin of, the man, of mankind. He's the only one who dies and cries out in the midst of his dying process, my God, my God, how could you forsake me? And he's the only one, only one, who's able to say in faithfulness and complete honesty, it is finished. The debt has been paid. And why did he do it? Because he will do whatever it takes to exalt the Father and to bring us into a relationship with him. I don't know about you, but when I read these words, I just want to say to God be the glory, great things he has done. January 6th was a big event in our country, but someday it'll be a, just a note in the history books and we'll be able to talk about something else for a while. But we will never stop talking about what Jesus did. In fact, every time we worship and celebrate communion, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your loving kindness to us. When we read the Bible, we are exposed to those twin truths that we're more sinful than we ever knew, but on the other hand, <laughs> we're more loved than we could have ever imagined. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you that you will do whatever it takes to exalt your Father and to bring us into relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to follow you in the things that matter to you. Be with our pastors, be with Christian leaders, be with your church, especially in these difficult times in which we're living, and help us to speak freely and openly and courageously of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.